Once upon a time, in a land far away. I'm Katrina, and I'm Jeff, and welcome to the Fairy Tellers Podcast. Myth, legend, folklore, fable. We explore what they say about cultures then and now. Grab a hot cup of cocoa and a comfy seat while we retell you a thing. Welcome back to the podcast. We are here with yet another exciting episode, as always. I was going through and looking at our reviews, as I like to do, and there was one uh, written review that we've gotten since the last time we read them, from the Philippines. So Tin Ong wrote, I'm glad I got back to listening to them again, because their tales are so interesting and keeps me entertained while doing mundane, boring stuff at work. Thank you. Yeah, seriously. I am always uh, delighted when someone uses us to break up the monotony of mundane, boring tasks. Me too. Whether it be work or chores. Especially because, and we talk about this a lot, oral storytelling would happen a lot as a way to break up those like boring, mundane tasks. And so it's like, oh, perfect. An excellent way to utilize us. Yeah. So thank you so much. And if you listening to this have not yet gone on and given us a review and you enjoy our podcast, please go and do so because we love hearing from you. It really helps the podcast a lot in rankings and helping other people find us. So if you like us, you want to help the podcast, please give us a review and we'll check back from time to time and read those here on the podcast so we can kind of have a little interaction with you, which we love. And this episode is going to be thanks to some of that interaction that we love. And it's from a Patreon supporter of ours. So thank you, Andrea, for this idea for this episode. And also thank you to all of our patrons who not only are like financially supporting the podcast so that we can pay for our platform fees, books and research, but also for communicating with us about what you want to hear on this platform. It's awesome. And also thank you to everybody this year so far who's sent in suggestions. So not only for your suggestions, but your patience. Uh, because we had a bunch of suggestions in the first couple months of the year and it has had to suck waiting every month for us to like go down the list to get to you. So thank you for everyone who sent in suggestions and is being patient for us to like get to them. Unfortunately, you know, like in a perfect world, I could research everything simultaneously and put out a podcast episode like every week, really, really fast of all these subjects. Um, but alas, we live in a fallen world <laughs> and I don't have infinite amount of time to do research simultaneously of every single fascinating topic. Um, so yeah, thank you to everyone for sending in requests and suggestions and thank you for your patience waiting. And I thought it'd be fun to put in a little teaser for some of the episodes that we have like looking forward. Normally we don't say like when episodes are like planned just because like stuff gets rearranged plans change sometimes you know something in the world happens that prompts us to like make a episode that's like more timely or whatever and so we don't normally say like what our schedule Mm -hmm. going forward is but i thought i would let you guys know some of the stuff that other people have suggested that we're looking forward to doing episodes on Uh, So in the second half of the year, some of the things we have coming up is The Old Lady in the Woods, which is a Grimm Brothers fairy tale 
But the person who, the audience member who suggested this, uh, they kind of put an interesting spin on it that they want me to take a look at some like other media that was created around that story that's going to make it really interesting to look at. Um, Interesting. I was wondering too, because it's like old lady in the woods. It's like, that could be (laughs) 20,000 different tales. It's like, wow, what a specific (laughs) title that story has. But I didn't realize that there was like a specific, you know, Grimm's tale that that was. So I'm. I'm excited for that. This is the first yeah. time hearing of this. Um, we ha- like have you have you not looked at the uh, schedule? No, you're fine. It should be obvious to you <laughs> right now that I have not. <laughs> we have a request for Oscar Wilde fairy tales, and Ooh. so yeah, the picture of Dorian Gray, the importance of being earnest, Oscar Wilde, that guy. A lot yeah. of people might not know this, but his mother was a collector of tales, and. He ended up writing some literary fairy tales because he grew up in an environment that was like rich in that and a mom who cared very deeply about that stuff. So somebody had recommended one of his literary fairy tales. I think I remember talking about how his mom had been a collector of fairy tales, but I don't remember hearing that he wrote some literary fairy tales, which someone's going to go back and find like the audio clip of me reacting Probably saying word for word what I'm about to say, but I love Oscar Wilde and I'm super excited to hear like his take on a fairy yeah. tale. They they are very artistic. I would say they're more sophisticated and grown up than Hans Christian Andersen's literary fairy tales. Mm-hmm. Um, and that might be an extremely controversial thing to say. So don't <laughs> at me. They're like I'm I can hear the one star reviews rolling in. Um <laughs> but anyway, so we're going to be uh looking at that moving forward and also several cryptid episodes. So, yes. we are a cryptid adjacent podcast. Yeah, I, have we ever done a cryptid? Yeah, we have. Kind, kind of. of. In like urban legends and other stuff. We talked about Mothman at one point. I feel like we've we've like side glanced up against Mothman. I don't. Uh, yeah. yeah. And I knew that our audience has significant overlap with people who love, you know, Bigfoot, Mothman, the Jersey Devil. Uh, but I think that in my mind, I assumed that they consumed like so much of that media or yeah, other media that- about that stuff that they, you know, don't need me like adding on to it, but several people have been like, Oh, I would love if you did a cryptid episode. So, so, so we, we will. will, we shall side note. Gladly. Uh, one of our first Patreon episodes that we ever did was about the Jersey devil. So yeah. just so people know, uh, there's some pretty good episodes hiding in our Patreon if account. <laughs> if you're one of those cryptid fans, we <laughs> yeah. got one for you. Basically any, any story that has the word devil in it or any creature that has the word devil in it we tend to gravitate towards that in our patreon account i don't know yeah i don't know i don't know how that (laughs) happened either but it did so i think it says more about us than it does about our patrons or maybe it says something about patreon as a platform yeah it's a secure place to uh worship the devil I'm pretty sure that is like on their website. (laughs) Patreon, a secure place to worship the devil. (laughs) That's, that's, Uh, that's my, that's my plug. So yeah, we have a lot of stuff to look forward to. Um, 
And obviously, you know, in September, we have another anniversary for the podcast coming up, which everybody, mm-hmm. everybody who's listened to the podcast knows that that's uh, some Cinderella tales. And we might be putting a fun little spin on that this year. So, ooh, yeah, tease it, but don't yeah. tell. Because that way, if I decide not to do it, <laughs> I can still. Like the fun little twist that we're taking is we're redoing the one of Charles Perrault and the Grimm's brothers, which actually wouldn't be a bad idea. Maybe not this year, but. Yeah. It's going to be a play. You and I are going to act it out. All the parts, just <laughs> you and I. It's going to be a video presentation um, to be found. And you'll on act out YouTube. all the men and I'll act out yep. all the women. We're gender bending it this year. And the non specific gendered animals will all be played by my children. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, and default female. Nice. Just like my, my daughter dressed up as a bird in a tree being like, like, they lie, they lie, they're sluts, they're sluts. <laughs> but today, we are going to be talking about the Inuit people, which is basically saying people, people, because Inuit means Ooh, people. <laughs> I love that. We're going to be talking about the people yeah, today. The, the people. Inuit is kind of a catch-all term for the groups of people, uh, several dozens of groups of people that were the first inhabitants of the highest parts of the North American continent, Greenland, and uh, parts of Siberia. And the islands that are kind of up there connecting those regions as well. So they used to be commonly referred to by the E-word, which I've known for years that it was derogatory and that I shouldn't say it. But as I was doing the research for this episode, I found out why it was derogatory. I had just heard people say like, oh, don't use the E word to talk about like Inuit people. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Never looked into it. It was just like, fine. That's <laughs> like, yeah, like, it. okay. So basically the E word like translates into like people who eat uncooked flesh, like flesh of animals, hmm. but like, People who eat uncooked yeah. cooked flesh. And it was essentially calling them like savages or heathens or like there are lots of other derogatory terms for other groups of people that have been used to make fun of what people eat. Mm-hmm. I'm sure if everybody took a second, they could think of them. I'm not going to say any of them. I mean, people call me Pop-Tarts and that is kind of hurtful. <laughs> As a white man, you feel very oppressed. <laughs> As a lover of processed foods, I feel oppressed. You're like, but this is my culture. <laughs> if you don't know what word I'm talking about, good. You don't need to. And if you do know what word I'm talking about and it is in your vocabulary, stop using it. When you know better, do better. So... We've never done an episode about, like, Inuit culture stories. I think the only one is in one of the, like, tales of animal brides. We mentioned that there was a a bride story where she was, like, in a, like, a seal skin. And that, like, a husband had stolen that. But I think that's the closest that we've ever gotten to do an episode Featuring like Inuit storytelling. So thank you to Andrea, one of our 
Patreon supporters for suggesting this to us. So Andrea specifically wanted to hear about Sedna. And I'm always excited to talk about goddesses from everywhere and all over. <laughs> Love goddesses. So Sedna is said to be one of the only goddess level figures in Inuit mythology, um, at least that is widely known about. Obviously, there is a history of Western European cultures moving in and corroding Inuit cultural heritage. <laughs> Such is the history of the world. <laughs> so what research can currently give us, Sedna is one of the only like goddess level figures. And the reason I keep saying goddess level is because like, obviously, mm -hmm. there's other mythical figures that are like female i mean i just mentioned like a woman that was like a seal yeah. and yeah but when it comes to like goddesses something that's like in control of like the elements sedna is mm -hmm. that and she like most goddesses is a goddess that is both life-giving and death bringing seems like those things go together pretty often they do especially like with goddesses and it, of course like it it makes sense that like women who typically historically have been like the ones that give birth to be more inclusive, I guess I could say just like people with uteruses like are typically, you know, seen as life bringers on account mm -hmm. of biologically what was being witnessed and seen. Yeah. And so it makes sense that goddesses would also be like given that power, but just like on a grander like scale. Mm -hmm. And then death bringing is also really interesting that that's uh, goddesses. And part of that is like how closely women are to death when they are bringing life. Mm -hmm. So up in the frozen North life, especially like in the form of like food comes mostly from the sea. Which, like, I have such a hard time, like, wrapping my head around this, that that there are people who have been able to survive up in the north, like, that far north, like, yeah. the Arctic Circle region north, for thousands and thousands of years. And to me, I'm like, oh, I couldn't make it five years <laughs> in Utah. <No. laughs> I was like, get me out of here. I hate it. Because I, I can't deal. But, but, and also like just thinking about like, yeah, how would somebody uh, live uh, like up north? I was trying to think about that the whole time I was doing like research on this. But yeah, a lot of the food comes from the sea, which we'll get into why Sedna and the sea is, you know, so like intricately like connected. Um, but death also comes from like the withholding of food mm -hmm. or even the pursuit of food going out like on the water mm -hmm. to get it. It's very dangerous. I mean, we've talked about that on the podcast, like a ton that yeah, the, the that water is always seen as something that's very like treacherous. Yeah. It's like life giving and taking without yeah. it. You will die, but with it, sometimes you'll also die. Yeah. And so it's interesting because like, like Sedna is that goddess like inside of like yeah. the ocean. It's like, it totally makes sense why she would be both this life giver and also like a death bringer. Yeah. And it's interesting too. Cause I feel like when you're in that cold environment, that water has even more ways of killing you. 
Like, you oh, know, yeah. in other places, like you fall in and you drown or something and that's bad. But like up there, it's like you fall in and get wet and you get so cold and you die of hypothermia because it's like you're in a, such a cold place, you know, like it's even yeah. more dangerous than in other places that aren't yeah. that cold. And also, so it's it's like falling in and like freezing in the water. But also if you fall into like an ice hole, mm-hmm. like a hole yeah. that's and you get stuck under there and you can't find that same hole to come back out yeah. of. Oh, gosh. Like you're trapped under the ice. Also, in the springtime, when the ice flows are starting to break up, uh-huh. people can be get stuck on one if it breaks and then they're just gone. Right. Like they don't sink into the water immediately. Yeah. But they float away and they can't get off of it without then getting into that freezing cold water and risking death that way. Yeah. Or they do get out of that water again and then freeze before they can get so like there are no good choices if you're stuck on an ice flow that like breaks up. Yeah. As I was like doing research for like these stories and I was realizing because like time and time again the theme of the like stories has been that like Nature is very harsh and unforgiving. And specifically, like, winter is Mm -hmm. harsh and unforgiving. The cold is harsh and unforgiving. Like, and ergo, the world is harsh and unforgiving. And you can see, and I mean, it's really interesting to, like, look at that, like, those kind of stories where it's so necessary to be teaching children what to expect in the world and, and how to live longer in this like harsh world. And then you look at stories from like a different place that still has danger, mm-hmm. obviously, yeah. but the danger is, is like different. And, and so the stories are less, they're like a little more like magical and floaty and like, <laughs> you know, like this, like, like just gorgeous ethereal kind of thing instead of stories that are like, if you do this tiniest thing wrong, you will die. But that that is, and so yeah, just like a lot of the stories where it was being like ice flows breaking up, falling into icy water, not being able to get back out, like uh, polar bears attacking you, like to, just a lot of things where I was like, oh my gosh, like I hadn't, I was thinking about how miserable the cold is and how hard it would be to find food in the dark, but I wasn't thinking about like the myriad ways there are to die. So I'm glad that we could talk about that on the podcast. (laughs) So the story of Sedna, I'm going to start off by saying that the Inuits are not one big homogenous group. Mm It is, it is the name that is given to lots of different groups. And so the story of Sedna varies from region to region, like group to group. But interestingly, they all have some version of the story of Sedna. Her name might vary, but this like goddess of the sea and the, the key elements of the story like all exist. So that's interesting because it it's one of those things that points like this is obviously one of like the oldest stories in the region. It obviously carries a lot of significance to the people if it has, you know, gone into all the different groups. And so there are, there are lots of different kind of versions of this. And so if this version doesn't sound like one that you've like 
seen on a different video. I actually would encourage you to like look up like like YouTube videos of people retelling the story because there's a lot there's a lot of different like versions. But just so that people are like, wait, that's not the one I've heard. I'm like, no, I believe you. Variation is like really important. Like part of the definition. Yeah, part of like the definition of <laughs> folklore. Uh, so the story begins with Sedna living in a village by the sea. So in some of the stories, she is an orphan and is struggling to live there. But in the story that I'm going to be retelling, she has a father uh, who's taking care of her. The mom does not appear to be like present in, the, in any of the, the stories. So Sedna was a very beautiful woman with the longest, most luxurious black hair and her father, who was somewhat of an important member of the group, again, it varies by story, but high-ranking enough like member of the group that he wanted to marry her off to another high-ranking member of another group for political reasons, which tale is old this time. <laughs> and like, yeah, no, that's that's definitely a theme that often like comes around is like women as like means to connect families together. Mm -hmm. um, so Sedna didn't like any of these like would be suitors alliances, and she wasn't interested in becoming their wives. And in some of the tales, she marries her dog in protest, <laughs> which obviously was deeply insulting to like all of the men. Uh -huh. uh, Ed was like upsetting to them. Uh, but in this version that I'm retelling, she declines to marry all of these men until a mysterious and handsome man appeared on the shoreline. He told everyone that he had come from a remote land that was like very, very, I'm going to use the word wealthy, but like it had a lot of resources. Uh -huh. So he had heard of Sedna's beauty and he wanted to see her for himself. So he had paddled, you know, all the way in his kayak to come and see her for himself and he promises her that he has a beautiful home that's lined with the softest furs and covered with the warmest pelts. And he said that the fishing there was plentiful and everyone was always like well fed and happy. So, of course, Sedna wants to go with this handsome man who's promising her this life of like safety and yeah. comfort. And everybody wishes her well. And some of the stories, the father is upset by the match. Um, but mostly everybody, you know, wishes her well. Her father sees her off into this man's kayak and they sail away. And they sail and sail for many days until they finally reach this remote shoreline. And Sedna is horrified because this man, this handsome man has tricked her because once they get to this rocky cliff, he puts on his cloak of feathers and is revealed to be a great bird spirit. And her home that she had been promised was going to be very warm and comfortable. <laughs> no, her home is a cliff of rocks. Oh. The home that was supposed to be lined with like furs and warm pelts was a nest of sticks covered with the bones and rotting innards of fish. Yeah. And her husband like leaves her there in this nest of sticks on the rocky cliff 
while his colony of birds flies all around her going back and forth from their hunting. It doesn't say anything about like excrement, but I'm sorry. Like that's all I can think of when I'm thinking of like just a giant yeah, cliff ton of birds of seabirds. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. I'm like, I, I'm so like, I'm so grossed out. Like thinking of it. There's like this, like nest of sticks on the edge of a cliff. I'm I like imagining just like how cold and miserable and stinky stinky like just like disgusting so she passes a miserable year barely surviving in this like harsh cold environment and in the springtime her father way on a distant shore he decides that he wants to go and visit his daughter and see how she's doing like how's her life going you know are there any kids i'm sure he's you know he's like i want to find out you know like what's going on so he gets into his kayak and he uh paddles days and days till he gets to the shore and when he gets there he's horrified to discover that his daughter had been tricked that she's living in these like horrible disgusting conditions and it says that like the daughter who was once this like glorious beauty has now been reduced to this like refuse covered frail and bony shell of her like former self. So obviously her father's, you know, really, really upset. And she tells her dad everything that had happened. And so her dad kind of like hides in this like nest of sticks. Why are you smiling? I was just thinking, you know, don't we all feel like a, a weathered, refuse covered uh sack of bones that is a of our former service up to the first year of marriage i mean (laughs) the first year they say is the hardest so the father of course you know was very upset about his daughter being tricked about the condition that she was how she had been treated and so he can hear the husband's flapping wings, you know, coming over. And so the father like hides himself with a knife in the nest. And the second that the husband, you know, lands in the nest and takes off his like cloak of feathers and as a man, the father like rushes out at him and stabs him to death. And he throws his body back into that nest of sticks and fish guts And the father grabs his daughter, puts her in the kayak, and he starts sailing home. But the other birds soon discover the murdered corpse of their former leader. Mm. And so in a rage, they start to pursue uh, the kayak. Oh, gosh. And so they're flying after them. It's just like huge flock of birds. I've seen Alfred Hitchcock's birds. I know how this goes. (laughs) That's that's exactly what happened. (laughs) And they get they get over the top of the kayak and they're all beating their wings, this like tremendous storm of birds Mm. and just like, like flapping and flapping their wings and the water is like churning up and it's getting, you know, the kayak is being tossed and thrown about in the water. And Sedna's father immediately, you know, is like afraid and is like, Oh no, the birds are mad. (laughs) And so he wanting to appease the birds decides to sacrifice his daughter by throwing her off the kayak and into the water. Oh, man. This guy's dad of the year trophy went over the side of the kayak with him when he did that. (laughs) Yeah, for real. I'm like, this is not a great dad. 
So in her terror at being like, you know, thrown from the kayak, she starts trying to swim back to the kayak. But every time she gets a grip on the side, her father pulls out that knife and is cutting off Sedna's fingers. Oh, geez. I hate that. Yeah, I knew you would. <laughs> so as the fingers are being cut off, I was like, let me not be laughing when I said <laughs> So as the fingers are being I was like, I knew you would hate it. <laughs> Mutilation. Like, oh my gosh, Katrina, stop. So as her fingers are cut off and they land into the water, they form into marine mammals, the seals, beluga whales, narwhals, orca. Mm. And in some of the stories, her fingers grow back quickly, but her father like keeps hacking at them. In other tales, you know, it's like, oh, he cuts them off by the first knuckle, second knuckle, third mm. knuckle, and then she loses her grip on the kayak. Oh. Either way, whatever story, he's cutting yeah. off her fingers. They're turning into these marine animals, and she eventually slips off, uh, lose her grip on the Ugh. kayak, and slips into the water. And here is where she is transformed into a goddess. As she is slipping down into this, like, cold, dark water, sinking deeper and deeper, the sky god sees her suffering. He sees the cruel injustice that she has had to suffer and he transforms her into a goddess. So stories vary, but in some tales, she like grows a tail at this like portion of the tail. And so she's kind of like a mermaid figure, mm -hmm. but her hands remain fingerless, just like the creatures that were created from those same fingers. Oh, which I'm like, that's fascinating because that is fascinating. like, which is what we know about these like marine mammals yeah. and that, you know, that they do have finger bones. Right. But they're just inside. But they're inside. Which is very much like, you know, if you were cutting them off by the knuckles, like still within the hands, there's kind of like, it's not the same, but there's still, you know, like well, yeah, the bones yeah, of the individual, like that lead up to the fingers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in other stories, her fingers grow back, but she herself then cuts them off to create more sea creatures to populate the Arctic Ocean. But in most stories, her most important feature once she is under the water is that long, beautiful black hair. Mm. So all the animals of the sea can hide in it for refuge. She can also call the animals to hide in her hair to withhold food from the people on the surface uh, who need that food to survive. Uh, in this way, she's able to control what people live and what people die. People who are following like spiritual uh, rituals that they are supposed to like properly follow to like respect the animal lives that they are taking when they eat. Mm -hmm. And if people aren't showing that proper respect, then she's like, no, then I'm going to withhold these animals um, from you because you're not being properly respectful. And so they will hide in her hair. Sometimes her hair can become tangled and without her fingers to comb out her hair, this like makes her super furious and angry, which can cause problems for the people on the surface. Sometimes she can't or won't release the animals in her hair for food. And so the surface of the water can become dangerous. So the Inuit have a spiritual way to solve this problem. And we will talk about it on this episode, but 
before I start talking about that, let's go back to the dad. Yeah. Because I'm really upset and unsatisfied uh, with the way that the dad gets away in most of the stories with sacrificing his daughter. Yeah, and that's just so the that end. It's escape. like she just becomes a goddess and has no fingers or does, but... And like, yeah, and it's just like, like, and then, and then it goes on to talk about like why things are the way they are with how she controls like life and yeah. death with the thing. That's yeah. And the dad is just gets off Scott. Yeah. You don't hear anything else about him. No. So th- it makes me absolutely livid. And like the main commonality in like all of these stories is that the dad dumps his daughter in the water and cuts off her fingers and the fingers become the animals that, that portion of the story no matter how it gets to that point that mm-hmm. dad cutting off the fingers and uh, the, the, the fish that that is like one of the biggest commonalities of all the stories throughout uh the inuit groups but um i hate that her dad sails away with zero bad things happening to him and if you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time you know that i hate that um and that i scream into my pillow late at night <laughs> About all the terrible fathers in fairy tale them. Uh, uh, like my my pillow is full of screams and <laughs> it is a cursed object. In my notes I wrote, can I sell that on OnlyFans? <laughs> That's the kind of stuff that people sell on OnlyFans, right? I don't think so. I think they just sell pictures of their mm, feet. I don't know. Would I have to do other stuff to that pillow to sell it on OnlyFans? <laughs> Anyway, write in and tell me what I should do with my pillow to sell it on all <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, yes. Please do not write in. So, very upset about this whole situation with, the, with dad. the dad. So, imagine my excitement when I found a version of this story <laughs> that includes some revenge for the dad. And this uh, version, I actually found while listening to a greats course episode on world mythologies. And I was so excited. So this is going to be kind of like a choose your own adventure book right now. Cause I want you to imagine that we got to the end of the story with Sedna and her hair. And you're like, you know what? I don't like that ending. I'm flipping back to page 59. <laughs> the birds are attacking the boat. The dad throws his daughter overboard. She swims to the kayak and her dad hacks her off her fingers. They fall into the water. Some turn into seals, some turn into whales. You, you get the idea. That's mm-hmm. where we're back at. The birds, seeing that Sedna is now without fingers and can't grasp onto the kayak, they believe that she's done for. They've, they've done their revenge, which I also don't understand. The dad stabbed the bird, right? Yeah. So why are they punishing this poor woman? Yeah. And like not her, they're like, nah, get the dad overboard. That's what I would have said. This you poor all know, grieving you widow, all her husband was just <laughs> murdered by her own father. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyway, the birds are grieving. appeased. The, the birds are appeased and they fly away. So the father, realizing that he's now safe, helps Sedna back onto the boat. I'm not impressed. Uh-huh. And he starts paddling for home. So here's the thing though. After someone has shown you who they are <laughs> truly yeah, in like a moment of fear and panic and they've used you as a sacrifice, that changes how you feel about them moving forward. That's I would. Uh-huh. And Sedna as well also has some changed feelings about her relationship with her father. 
Obviously. But Sedna is biding her time. So once they get back to their home, wrap up her hands, they're warming up. Sedna's father falls asleep. And Sedna summons her dog that she didn't marry at the beginning of our story, (laughs) but she still has this dog. So she summons her dog and brings it into the house and has it attack her father. So it, the dog starts to eat his hands and his feet. Obviously the dad doesn't stay asleep for this. (laughs) That'd be insane. So he wakes up. And like there is screaming, there's blood that is falling on the ice and warming it up. There's this struggle and this chaos. And in the midst of all of this like struggle and chaos, the ground below them opens up and swallows the home, the dog, the father, and Sedna. And they all sink down into the dark midnight ocean below the ground. Mm -hmm. And it's the underworld. And Sedna becomes the goddess of darkness and death, the goddess of the underworld. But also she becomes the goddess of the life of the ocean that was created from her fingers. The animals hearing her now back in the ocean come to the woman who had created them. And in this version, she also has this beautiful long black flowing hair that these animals can come to hide in for refuge that she has control over. So still in this story, there's that hair that uh, is there. I loved that ending where at least the dad, you know, gets his comeuppance. I also thought it was really fascinating. I haven't, I didn't see this written anywhere, but I just had, thought it was interesting that the dog was eating the dad's hands and feet, which is typically the first places where um, frostbite. Yeah. That's what I was thinking too. Yeah. That it was a lot like, like the effects of like frostbite, like losing like those like extremities, like first. So this story, you know, it, it sets up this spirituality that is very much linked to the ocean and getting life out of the ocean. But also we've introduced this problem of what what happens when the ocean, there aren't animals to be hunted. Like everybody is like starving and hungry. And this story answers the question of like, where are the animals? Like when this is happening, they're being withheld for whatever reason by Sedna. So the problem also has a solution in the spirituality of the Inuit people. Their main spiritual leader is, there's a lot of different pronunciations um, depending on what region they are. The one I was hearing a lot was Angakok. Uh So their spiritual leader, Angakok, a, a lot of places were just saying like, oh, shaman, use the word shaman. No, I don't want to, uh, because like, that's not, we, we run into this problem a lot. Like when we're talking about like translations, when people are like, oh, I am more familiar with the word medicine man or shaman. So I like, I'm going to use that instead of the word that that person does. But then that becomes confusing because not all shamans perform the same actions for the people. So yeah. We're, we're going to say Angakok for this spiritual leader. So Angakoks had 
different there were, there were different jobs basically that they would do for the people but one of their main jobs that they were doing was that when food was being withheld by Sedna like the sea wasn't giving up any food and the people were starting to like be hungry and suffer mm. you know they would go to the angakok and ask him to intervene in some way and what they would do is they would travel outside of their corporal form so their spirit would leave their body right. and travel down into the ocean into the sea or into the underworld where Sedna was with her hair and if she was like angry upset because her hair had become tangled the angakok would in spirit form like brush out her hair, brush out like all the tangles, sing to her, dance for her if she wanted. Sometimes if he got, you know, down there to the underworld and what she was withholding or withholding the animals or was upset about was something that was done by somebody in the group, the mm -hmm. like the village community that would be communicated to the Angakok. And then he would, you know, travel back into his body and go to the village and as a group say to everybody, somebody has broken a taboo and they need to confess and face like some kind of punishment. Normally a confession was like all that it took mm -hmm. for that, you know, for the goddess to be like appeased that right. she wouldn't be upset if they admitted to like what they had done, whether it was a hunting practice that they hadn't observed respectfully or something that they had done to mistreat somebody in the community, mm -hmm. taking more than they needed. Yeah. Mis mistreating like other people in the community. And so this Angakok is the one person who really could communicate with Sedna in the group. And it's interesting because in some groups, it is this kind of like father son dynasty thing that like it travels, but in other people or in other groups, the Angakok was usually somebody who early on in their life, like in their teenage years seemed to show some kind of, a spiritual power, like either somebody who had very powerful dreams was able to prophesy like the times of year when the ice was going to break up or mm. like finding really good at finding food or whatever, um, interpreting dreams. If somebody showed some kind of ability or aptitude for that, then they would then be taken like as an apprentice under the current Angakok. And then sometimes uh, it was people who were orphaned or people who had survived a really hard time because it was believed that they were able to survive in this harsh environment, even though they'd gone through like being orphaned mm. or like whatever, like difficulty that they were able to overcome that because they were being aided by spirits of dead loved ones. And so there were several ways that, you know, somebody could be identified as a possible Angakok, like in the future. And so there are several stories that involve these Angakoks 
working with um with the community or like with children to teach them lessons that they need to learn for like hunting mm-hmm. including stories that were like like if you are too loud if children are too loud and they scare away something that you're hunting then like they need to be punished severely and so it was like a story that you would tell to children yeah to like be like no don't misbehave mm-hmm. because that would be really bad for us as like a community that's like on like the edge of survival, which is why like a lot of people who've like studied these stories, like look at them and they're like, we know that they sound harsh. Like we know that like the stories sound very like brutal, like yeah. brutalistic, yeah. but yeah, the stakes were high. <laughs> it was like, it was yeah, literally yeah. life or death. Yeah. Like it's, it's reflected in a lot of like what was going on. So it's like, of course, you know, that you had people who, you know, sing and dance and, you know, have a good time and just general human stuff. But also like when you were dealing with like nature, you had to take things like very seriously Mm. when you're talking about like winter coming on and the darkness that comes with that. Yeah it has to be taken very seriously when it comes to communities getting along with each other it was very important because nobody in this society could survive alone. It had to be like a community effort to live. So this next story is called Taligvak and Taligvak is the main character of this story. And so you will find out who he is shortly. So a long time ago, in a village next to the shores of the Arctic Ocean, there was a harsh winter that had come on. Snowstorms were constantly blowing, making it impossible to hunt, and people were in their homes, sheltered, trying to figure out how they were going to make it through until this snowstorm blew over and waiting till winter like ended. So... A lot of the hunters, they were inviting a lot of these well-known, it says the word shaman in here, I'm going to say Angakok, to call upon spirits to to dance and to try to summon more seals to come forward so that, you know, they could have the famine end. Uh, but they weren't having a lot of luck with the Angakoks that, they had but meanwhile there was a young man named Taligvak who lived with these people people didn't like him very much it doesn't say a whole lot like why possibly he was a wee bit antisocial and hard to like get along with and so he lived alone kind of at the edge of the settlement apart from the other people which is a very precarious place for him to be in mm-hmm. because of how i just mentioned you can't really can't get along. Alone. You can't live alone out here. It is too cold, too dark. And so he was like kind of just getting by. Nobody wanted to give him a daughter to be his wife, to join into their family. His parents had long since died. So he was an, an orphan. orphan who was uh, living kind of out on his own, roughing it. It says he didn't have a wife who could sew him warm clothes, and so he made do on his own. He had a knife 
that he had been able to fashion from some bones. It says uh, the like foot bones of a rabbit or a snow hare. And with this knife, he used it to help him build a snow house. Not a big one, just one that was big enough to cover him up or keep him covered and sheltered in mm. a laying down reclined position. And he didn't have enough money to have a stone lamp either. And so he was always cold. And it said when his mittens became frozen with frost, he had to put them under his clothes next to his skin. And as he slept, the heat from his body would dry them miraculously. Mm. So it's like he's barely making it, but he is making it. Yeah, he's surviving through somewhat supernatural seeming means. Yeah, means. Uh, I guess it says here that the it's like it's possible that everyone avoided Taligvok because he was because they were afraid of him because he was believed to be a powerful shaman. Uh, so I'm like, mm-hmm. so while all of these other Angakoks were trying to get seals to come up so that you know they would have like some food and failing. People started to remember Taligvok and how he had seemed to have an aptitude for powers and that maybe he being an orphan, being a person who is like barely surviving, but surviving nonetheless on the fringes of society that he might have powerful enough magic as a Angakok to help them. And so they decided that that what they were going to do was go to his small little ice house to ask if he could help them. So at first they sent three young men over to talk with him. And so when the three men arrived at Taligvok's ice house, two of them, it says, were so afraid that they didn't want to even look inside of his house because they were so afraid of like Taligvok. Just him? Yeah. And so the third man kind of just shouted like into his ice house to Ligvok, <laughs> the people want you to come to like their the big the big ice house that they had that was like a community like building. The people want you to come to the community and see them. No reply. To Ligvok was just like sitting inside silently. <laughs> And they're just like standing there waiting. It says, finally, he answered and said, well, the wind is blowing up a storm and it's cold out. I have nothing warm to wear, so I can't leave. Maybe if somebody brought me something to wear, I could leave my ice house and go over to the the community, like uh, the community house. So the messengers, they returned and they told uh, the community about what Taligvok had said. And so immediately a woman was sent to Taligvok with a present of mittens and a coat and boots. And she took him by the arm and led him back to the big igloo. So now he's like, oh, we'll be really nice to you now that we like need you. So Taligvok entered the igloo. And when he reached the entrance of the largest room, he refused to go inside and said that he was just going to stand by the door. You know, the people were like, oh, okay, okay. Like, well, you know, whatever you want. If you don't want to come in here with us, like, that's totally fine. But if you want, you know, maybe we could supply you with like a warmer house to live in. Perhaps we could supply you with like more good clothes, more warm skins for you to sleep under. 
If you are able to cut a hole in the ice in here and to get a seal to come to stop us from starving, we will make sure that you aren't, you know, on the fringes of society ever again. So Taligvok was like, hmm, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> I love how, like, disinterested. He's, he's like, fine. But he says, don't watch what I am doing. Just go back to your dancing and singing and don't come over here wh- while I'm working. And he hadn't even cut a hole in the ice out in like that front like area yet. And so the people were like, okay, like if you want to. So they go back to their singing and their dancing and he leans forward like on the ice and he just starts with his breath to blow on the ice just again and again. And the magic force that was within his breath started to heat away the, the ice on the ground. And slowly the ice was broken apart and water bubbled up from that hole showing obviously that like, yeah, he got through all the solid like ice and you know, people came over to see like, you know, what progress he was making since they had just left him kind of at the entrance without, you know, any tools or anything like that. And so when they got there and they saw that there was, you know, water at the bottom of this hole that he had been able to, you know, with his own eyes, like create this like hole, they start, getting like excited. They're like, like, Oh, he's like, he he's done it. He's done it. And Taligvok turns to them and he's like, okay, go back to dancing. Don't watch what I'm doing. <laughs> Leave me alone. And once they go back to singing and dancing, he pulls out a small magic weapon and it says it's a harpoon, which is as small as a child's toy. So it's like a harpoon basically yeah. in in name only not uh-huh. very much like in function or so you would think but it's a magic weapon so he starts singing a song to the spirits um and here's something that i find like really beautiful as i was like reading stuff about um like inuit culture and their beliefs like around the animals that animals have the same capacity of spirit as like humans do. Mm -hmm. And so for to eat these animals, to constantly be a a culture that is hunting where so much of their diet comes from hunting, not from gathering, not from agriculture, but like hunting that they really do have like a profound respect for the animals that are coming to them. And they do want to make sure that like they are respecting the spirit. They take it seriously that like the animals like have a spirit and that when they kill them, it's a sacrifice that is like almost lovingly being made by the animal or at least Mm -hmm. like an understanding of the way of life and like the world. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's like in this part of the story where he, you know, puts his like face down to like the hole and he's singing a song to the spirits of the animals. I'm like, that's so like beautiful. Mm. And so this one, obviously, you know, it's a translation, which I was actually, I was reading in uh, another essay about this. It was called in the search of the true hunter Inuit folk tales adapted for children. The person who wrote that paper specifically named this book tales from the igloo as stories that had been, 
like kind of painstakingly translated to make sure that they weren't like changing the meaning or the spirit of like what was being written. And I was like, okay, that's always good when somebody's like this book specifically. So it says what he said to the spirit was what joy to hear climbing from the bottom of the water, a very fat animal who will give to all as much to eat as they will want. What joy to see it stretched out on the floor of the igloo when they have pulled it from the bottom of the water. And while he was singing this, like it says singing this song, like into the hole, Mm -hmm. he sent his little, you know, little toy harpoon his like small magic harpoon. Into the water, and basically immediately a seal, which had heard his song, came, and he was able to pull it up onto the floor of the igloo. Which, again, like the point that it was like this little small thing that he had sung to the animal to get it to come up. Right. But it was like, it it is like, this wasn't, it, it paints it as a picture of like, it wasn't a violent act, it was a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Like... And that he was showing that kind of like proper respect as an angacock to the like spirits of these like creatures, which I'm like beautiful. And so when he pulls this seal up and onto the floor of the igloo, he calls the people over so that they can like take the beast into this like secondary room of this big house so that they can cut it up. And he told them to remove the head of the harpoon from the seal's body first and to bring it back to him. And so they do that first. And then he tells them now cut up the meat and make sure to distribute it evenly amongst everybody. And that's another theme often with like food is this like emphasis on like dividing it up evenly, Mm -hmm. but like, like nobody takes more than is like what, what they should have. And so the people are excited and they, you know, they start eating their food because they haven't had any food in so long. And they were in like a starvation situation when they invited him in there. So they ate the food and they, you know, they started singing and dancing again. And so he went back to the hole and again, he like sang into the hole. What joy for the men when on the ice, a big seal is hauled from the hole where he came to breathe. My harpoon line is for him like a snare, which squeezes him. And again, he sends his little harpoon down and pulls up a second seal. So this time now the people are like, okay, it happened more than once. You know, that, that first seal got us past the point of like starvation. Yeah. Now this seal is, is giving us like hope. Now we know we have food for the next day. Like this beautiful. And so the winter passed in this manner and soon the darkness lifted up from the sky and the earth, which again, they they're in the Arctic circle. So like when it's winter, it's it's dark. Like it's, yeah, it's winter. It's when there's like, and the darkness lifted from the sky and the earth. It's like for the first time in months. Yeah, like, thank goodness it's happening. And so spring returned, and with it, the people now could leave that kind of community building and go back out to hunt caribou or to fish in the lakes that are lower down. So by this time, Taligvok was now part of the community welcomed in, but he was still somewhat left alone 
but he made sure to always stay close to the community so that when they needed his help, he was there to not just help them find seals, but also teaching them respectful ways to hunt other Mm -hmm. animals in the future. And I loved that story a lot more after doing more research about like Angakok and like what their job to a community is. And also the fact that it is like this, like, no, it matters that in the story he was an orphan, an orphan that he was roughing it on his own, but then also that he, you know, had these like magic implements that he knew how to like, speak and be reverent about like the animals that he was catching and showing like this, like proper respect. And cause like reading the story through kind of like the first time, like without knowing any of that, it was just like, Oh, okay. That's interesting. But then like finding out like, no, 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 this is like, he is like a spiritual leader and what he's doing in this story, not only, you know, would people in the community be hearing from their own Angakok, like proper respect and stuff. But this Mm -hmm. story can also be used to like reiterate that, that like, Oh, this is, this is what we learned in these stories about proper respect. This is like what we know now. And just really, really fascinating. And then I also liked it just how it can just tie into like Sedna and why she's so important. (laughs) Like, in the community and basically like how religious figures and religious stories, like what that means for the day-to-day life of people. Mm-hmm. Cause I do find like the stories about like mythologies really interesting, but the parts that I find more interesting are like how that affects how humans live their daily lives next to that mythology or having a belief in that mythology, like what it leads them to do. Right. Yeah. It's like with the two stories we talked about today, the first story about Sedna, like you could hear that story. It's like, that's an interesting story. It explains why the world is the way it is. Like why, you know, the animals don't come out from the water. Why there's times where it's like hard to have food and other times when it is, it's like, Oh, at the whims of, you know, this goddess. And it's like, we're upsetting her. We need to make sure we're doing things right. You know, like, it goes into a little bit, I guess, but this one like went into like very specifically the, yeah, like the hows and the whys and the, like the process of it from the people's perspective rather than from like the goddess's perspective, which I thought was kind of a cool thing to, with both, to put both those stories like together in that way. Yeah. It's also interesting. I don't know if this is actually a part of it, but to think like, you know, these animals mm-hmm. are originated as part of like this goddess's body. Yeah. And it's like, is that another reason why, like, you know, is that why they have a similar spirit to like a human being or whatever? Like, and that's why it's deserving of respect or is it because it is like a piece of deity that is deserving of respect or like, does that even play into it or not? It just makes me wonder, you know, like. Oh yeah. Like I, I hadn't read anything that said something like that, but like hearing what you're saying right now, I'm like, yeah, no, that absolutely makes sense that it's like this animal was divinely made and it's a gift that like you get to eat it yeah, and like take part in that. 
And what's crazy, and it's like, I don't know, we might be getting like too like lost in like the weeds or whatever. I'm like, right. um, kind of becomes like a communion almost, you know, where uh-huh. it's like, oh, you're eating like the flesh of like right. uh, something divine. Which is one of those things uh, I was thinking like, like, is oh, it just my, yeah, it's like, is yeah, that yeah, my, yeah, yeah. my, you know, world in the world that I grew up in, like priming me to think those things and they wouldn't even have thought about it at all. Like, it's like, yeah, that's part of the well, story, yeah, but yeah, it doesn't, yeah. do, it doesn't mean anything. I don't, you know, I don't know. Like. I'm just like, am I being too, am I putting too much of myself into it? But anyway, I still yeah. think it's a really fascinating and interesting idea because it, just the fact that they do have this relationship with animals, treating them with respect and, you know, like have this specific thing about like the right way to hunt, the right way to do things. And, and it'd be yeah. interesting to know what is behind that too. I'm sure with lots of things, there's, there is kind of like practical reasons and like similar to like making sure everyone gets their their peace. Like we don't kill animals like when we don't need them because the meat might not last or so, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Like if those were tied in, like you said, the thing that you like, the, the, the way that it functions in the society and how it's beneficial to them as people and helps them survive in this really, really difficult to survive environment. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of, I mean, this is going like way back to when we were talking about like the earthquakes in Japan and the, you know, the people would, would bring like different rocks to that, like this one spot just that they believed was helping to like kind of hold down that tsunami fish and how our fears about the like unknown or things that we can't control. Like mm-hmm. if there's not more animals seal, around to eat, <laughs> then yeah, then we will die. Um, that it is like, okay, what is in our control to do? What is in our control to do is like being as respectful as possible so that we don't upset any like goddesses by mistreating her animals that are mm-hmm. hers, like having uh like different rituals that we do to make sure because there I'm um, there were some stories that would talk about, I think it was either polar bear or caribou that when they would catch those, um, those like land animals, when they would catch those, Mm -hmm. they would take the head and they would point its head towards where the animal had come from so that its spirit could go back to that place and have more of those animals like come back. And so like there's, there was different things like that or even like how to save different pieces of bone and uh, like different like pelts, how to take care of all those things to make sure that they were as like well-preserved as possible so that they could last the longest, so that they could be the strongest to help them hunt. And so, you know, it's like proper ways of carving things, not just like the proper in the methodology of making it, but in like, the reverence and the ritual of making it to make yeah. sure that it was the like best tool that it could possibly be, whether it was like a harpoon or a spear, or, you know, bow tip. Right. It was like, okay, what things are in our control and mythologies. That's like one of their main functions to like all of human society is like answering those questions of like, okay, how do I have some control over a life that is like very unpredictable. And so it makes sense. That yeah. Like something fundamentally out of my control. How do I have any bit of control? Over yeah. It? How do I at least comfort myself knowing I'm doing the most I can do to like give myself success and like not anger 
any divine being of uh, the natural world. I love that these stories had us taking a look at a culture that, one, we hadn't talked about a great deal, one that I hadn't done a whole lot of research about, but also one that it's like deeply fascinating with like its history, how the the landscape has like shaped the the stories of the people. And one thing that I've also greatly enjoyed in like the last year is TikTok. (laughs) I just want to like give like a quick little plug at the end of this episode for native TikTok creators. I think that there we had a couple episodes ago that I like mentioned TikTok before, but like if you want more information about Inuit people or any like native people, there are so many good TikTok creators like out there. And they talk about both what they have heard from their ancestors, what they have researched themselves, and like how they live their life today, what recipes, you know, they still follow, what animals they still cook and prepare. It is deeply, deeply fascinating. I know probably a lot of people aren't using TikTok to, you know, hear the voices of different cultures or other. That's what I'm using it for because I'm an absolute <laughs> dork. It's fine if you're using TikTok uh, for the dances uh, or the thirst traps. No judgment from me. But definitely check out some of the uh, native creators on TikTok. Uh, if you look for like hashtag native talk, then you're going to find like tons. It's like incredible. And I would le- like encourage you to be looking for the voices from the people who are from the cultures that we talk about on the podcast. It's it's really enriching to hear people from this culture uh, talk about their own culture. And yeah. Support them. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. I was really, really glad that we got to look at this so that I can also have more reverence for the nature that is around me. I'm a person that loves like going out into nature and just enjoying that. But hearing other people describing, you know, the spirits that are inside of like everything around us or even just like having like respect for what's out there. I absolutely love that Andrea suggested that we take a look at this goddess and do uh, a podcast episode about Sedna. I I love a good female empowerment story. And this mm. is one where like sometimes when people retell it, it's not as like empowering for Sedna as like I wanted it to be. And so doing like a bunch of like research on it and finding the story that like resonated with me. That's important, but also, yeah, like go out and look for other versions of the stories that'll maybe have elements that like also resonate with you. I love Sedna just as a goddess that is this life giving force and also this like death bringing force. And I don't know, I just love a story where like a woman, even though she is like, badly mistreated goes through like a really tough time she is able to like overcome and become this like absolute force of nature in this case Sedna is like the 
force of nature. Thank you for listening to The Fairy Tellers. If you enjoy what we're doing, please leave us a review or share us with your friends. Also consider supporting us on Patreon for access to exclusive bonus content, including outtakes and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash thefairytellers. Special thanks to Andrew Foray for our music and to Clarice Inch for our artwork. And of course, a big thank you to all our patrons. Without all of you, this show wouldn't be possible. Fairy tales are always more interesting when something is added to them. Each new telling recharges the narrative, making it crackle and hiss with cultural energy. Maria Tatar So the father was a... so. I'm going to fart. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why I said thank you. I think I was like, thank you for waiting for me. Uh Uh, Thank you for your patience in this trying. Um... (laughs) Thank you for for being here and bearing witness um, (laughs) to this.